Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this Friday. We've got a busy show today. We're going to be talking about several different aspects of agriculture. We're going to kick it off in just a moment with Cam Quarrel, CEO of the National Potato Council, as that harvest gets underway across much of the country. And then in segment two, Naomi Bloom of Total Farm Marketing will be joining us. It's been a busy week in the commodity markets. Naomi's going to tell us what she's watching as we prepare for the next week to come. And in segment three, we're going to turn our focus back to fertilizer. That market continues to be very, very volatile. And Josh Linville, the vice president of fertilizer over at Stonex, will be joining us for a breakdown. We're going to talk about what's developing over there in Europe with their natural gas crisis. And then finally, in segment four, we're going to talk with John Johnson. He's the project coordinator at the Farmers for Soil Health, a partnership of several different commodity organizations that yesterday was awarded a $95 million grant from the USDA. We're going to talk about how they're going to utilize that and leverage it for soil health. Before we jump into all of that, however, let's get the rundown on potatoes. Cam Quarles, CEO, National Potato Council. Harvest is underway and not a moment too soon as potato supplies were getting a little short this summer, weren't they, Cam? Yeah, things were things have been a little short, Mike. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think we, we're always trying to balance that. You know, the the, the crop that's finishing up and the the, the one that's being harvest harvested uh, had a little bit bigger of a gap than than we usually see. It caused some some temporary uh, temporary issues. We think those are going to be resolved. Obviously, the harvest is is going on across the country right now. Um, I, you know, I, I think. So, some some folks in the media that maybe don't follow agriculture uh, quite quite as closely as you did thought that that was a harbinger of much bigger issues with the commodity. That's simply not the case. Um, har- harvest is going very well. Looks like the crop is going to be a high quality one this year. That's good to hear, Cam. And I was wondering that larger than average gap between last year's supplies and the new crop coming in. I'm wondering, was that caused because more Americans are going out to eat? We're seeing potato consumption climb here as COVID uh, fades further into the background. Consumption is clearly up. Um, you've, you know, also we we were not immune to uh, some supply chain issues that uh, you know caused caused issues both with. Uh, planting as well as at harvest time, um, it, you know, I, I think we're going to we're going to work that through the through the system. Um, but you know, clearly, the, it is a very positive message when you look at the long term trend lines. Our friends at Potatoes USA out in Denver, the long term trend lines for consumption of potatoes extremely positive, and so that that's great um, uh, amongst uh, you know all all the various classes of of the commodity. So, Cam, let's talk about how this new crop harvest is going. I know several states are seeing it underway, and it was a tough summer for a lot of growers. What are you hearing so far on the harvest? Yeah, it, you know, it. Um, I, I think depending on where you are, it's going to be a different different circumstance. Uh, some some folks are getting a lot of water. Some folks not enough. Uh, you know, I think in in general, um, it, uh, it it looks to be a. a, a Pretty good, good quality crop. I'm going to leave that to the to the experts at the individual farms. But uh, you know, we're we, we don't see any major major issues out there this year with the with the potato crop. Um, obviously, we want to get the this this gap that you mentioned earlier. But we want to get that kind of put to bed and get back to a little bit more more normal business, which is is going to happen here in the next few weeks. Absolutely. That harvest will press forward. And Cam, as that harvest moves along, of course, work in Washington, D.C. continues on the policy front. I know you are chair of the Specialty Crop Alliance. You've been having conversations. Are there any things you'd like to see changed as we prepare for the 23 Farm Bill? 
Yeah, we're we're going through. So it's a, it, we've talked about this before, Mike. It's one of the big challenges of the specialty crop industry. Uh, we have over 200 very different commodities under that umbrella, and so we've all got to get together either on uh, virtual calls or in a uh, in a boardroom setting and kind of sort through all the major priorities for the for the industry. I, I you know I think the kind of the fundamentals of our industry remain the ta- remain the same. Very focused on increasing consumer demand, both domestically and internationally for fruits and vegetables. Uh, similarly, we've, we've got to put uh, uh, competitive varieties of those fruits and vegetables on folks' tables. Um, that, that, is, that demands a strong partnership with USDA on the research side of things. And then uh, not, not unusual for specialty crops or really any of, the, any of the commodities in agriculture, we're always keeping an eye on pest and disease issues. We want USDA to, to the extent that they can, keep those pests and diseases offshore. Uh, if they happen to get into the United States, we want them to have a robust set of tools that can knock those pests and diseases down and make sure that our domestic or international markets aren't compromised by them. So uh, a lot of the fundamentals really remain the same. One of the big challenges I think we're dealing with is as you're recovering from COVID, there was some emergency monies in there. How does all that kind of sort through the system uh, and you know, hopefully put us on a glide path to get back to, to more normal business? All right, Cam. And of course, trade continues to be a big issue in all issues, aspects of commodity production. Uh, You've seen some big moves here with Mexico. How is that trade with Mexico continuing? It's, it's so we're we're still very cautiously optimistic, Mike. The, the 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 market opened really kind of at the at one of the lower points in our season, as, as we were talking earlier. Um, we we uh, had a little bit. Uh, bigger gap than we had thought that we were going to have with the incoming crop. That's led to lower volumes going into Mexico. I think very, very modest kind of test loads going into Mexico. The the real um, the real test of how well this is functioning is going to come in December, January, February, when hopefully those volumes grow. Mexican consumers uh, really start demanding uh, uh, these new varieties of U.S. potatoes that they don't see in their markets and in their restaurants. And um, it, w- once those volumes grow, we'll see how our competitors react. We're very hopeful. Uh, that that the demand that is going to be generated by our product being in Mexico is going to is going to be a positive both for Mexican growers and the U.S. But only time is really going to tell. Absolutely, and of course, by the time we get to January, folks will be gearing up for the Potato Expo. Cam, you just announced that. Where is it going to be, and when? Well, we're we are extremely excited to have the Potato Expo back in full force. It is going to be at the Gaylord Rockies. So anybody who has been to Denver uh, Airport, once you get out of the airport, you see this giant complex kind of out in the distance. That is the Gaylord Rockies, incredibly accessible, both for our domestic as well as our international attendees. We're going to have over 2,000 people there in, uh, from all across the North American potato industry and, and folks from overseas as well. Really excited. We've got some celebrity chefs who are going to be coming from the Food Network. Uh, huge opportunity. We always kick this off the first week in January. It's going to be the 4th and the 5th, and a great way to start our year. So we're thrilled that Expo is back in full force. Fantastic. Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. Thank you so much for joining us today. Always great to talk to you, Mike. Thanks. And folks, stick around. We'll be checking in with Naomi Bloom of Total Farm Marketing when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. 
Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock. Another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon. Accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for making AOA a part of your day here on this Friday. It's time to take a look at the markets. The week of volatility is coming to a close here on this Friday, but I bet with harvest ahead and all the geopolitical events still happening around the world, there's going to be some more excitement. Naomi Bloom of Total Farm Marketing watches these markets very closely, and she joins us today. Naomi, how are things looking up in Wisconsin? Well, hey, Mike, good to talk to you, and thanks for having me on. Um, markets today, of course, a little bit sour here um, as we are heading into the heart of harvest. So we got a little bit of harvest pressure going on with markets today. And uh, prices overall, though, pretty well supported, especially with the friendly tone of that USDA report earlier in the week. Well, and Naomi, I've got to ask you about the soybean market. We're seeing a little bit of a sell-off today. We're down 10 to 11 cents here across most contracts. And is this related to the NOPA crush report that came out this morning, missing expectations a little bit? Well, that is part of it. So the, the crush report showed 165.5 million bushels were crushed in August um, from um, trade expectations actually, um, you know, not quite missing the, the target there. So. Um, we're, we're a little bit lower on that, but also prices, you know, got up to that $15 resistance area on the November contract and then didn't have a reason to get above 15 So we're seeing the pullback after Monday's numbers. And, of course, there's some concern as well that, you know, we've got our export sales that came out and export sales overall were good, but the fear is that we're going to start to see South America pick up some of the business. And we did see that with Argentina uh, late last week, early this week, uh, China did buy, I think it was estimated at about 20 cargoes of beans from Argentina. So there's some uh, global issues going on there as well, again, along with that NOPA crush number not quite hitting the mark. 
It, you know, that Argentinian soy dollar move they made down there, Naomi, 20 cargos that they've sold here over the past two weeks. Can you put that into context for us? How many bushels of beans is that? Or how often do we ship 20 cargos or sell 20 cargos at once to a, a single foreign buyer? Well, that would be like the equivalent when we get those really, really big um, USDA um, purchases, like over a million metric tons, that type of a thing. Um, so we, in the past, have had that type of capability, but just recently we haven't had it. And so the market was a little bit um, snubbed, I would say, uh, because we haven't seen big purchases like that from South America recently, but maybe with this pullback on prices. And I think also with China understanding that, you know, we're not going to have necessarily a huge record crop here. So if there is a pullback on prices, they maybe want to, you know, take advantage of that. Um, of course, traders are also a little bit com uh, concerned if we should see any um, sanctions put against China because of Taiwan. So as you said, you know, earlier in the show, there's definitely uh, geopolitical stuff everywhere. And each headline every other day dictates price movement for the short term. It does indeed, Naomi. And I tell you, that can be uh, cause a little heartburn as we're watching these markets move. We've got another event coming up next week. Federal Reserve expected to raise interest rates one more time. Do you anticipate that having any direct impact on commodity market pricing next week when they make that announcement? Well, right now, I think three quarters of a point is already priced into everything so far. Um, if they raise it a full point, that would be negative probably in the short term. Um, you, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff coming at us in terms of ways to try to suppress demand or, or be cautious of demand. And that's going to keep the markets from getting through overhead resistance levels for the short term. But at the same time, because our U.S. supply situation is so strong and, you know, we're just starting harvest and we're going to have snug supplies now until next year's end of harvest. So that's supportive to the market. And then global supplies, because the entire northern hemisphere did not have record production this summer, that is supportive to the market as well. So we're still kind of in this battle back and forth. Um, any any kind of a pullback, though, that we have for prices, I do think we're going to see global end users step up and be buyers, and U.S. domestic end users step up and be buyers as well. And, and Naomi, on a pullback, and I'm looking at the corn market today, we're down six, seven cents here across most of the contracts. Would this be the size of pullback you'd be encouraging those domestic end users, dairy producers, uh, livestock feeders to step in and secure some coverage out for spring? Or do you let it fall a little farther? Well, we are about 30 cents off the highs from recently. And so this is a pretty good textbook pullback. We're um, right on the 100-day moving average and seeing where the 21-day moving average come in as um, a little support area. Should this 665-ish area fail, the next level of support is down near 640. And that is tremendous support. So in general, yes, I think you're going to want to be doing some re-ownership or some securing of your needs again, because supplies are so tight. And I think once this grain gets harvested, what goes to town and gets to the elevator is going to go there. But there's a good portion of this grain that's going to get locked up into the bins in the backyards of farmers, and it's not going to come out until prices um, you know, go back up or get attractive, because now we all are aware that now South America in December, January, February, they have to have perfect weather, or we're going to be right back in that same scenario like last year. And so if they have poor weather in South America, prices are going to shoot back up this winter. Um, and then we'll have our fight for acres for the United States to talk about as well, because again, U.S. ending stocks, tight, U.S. supplies, tight, and that is the bottom line. It is indeed. Naomi, of course, you are a Wisconsinite. You work with a number of dairy producers. Recently wrote an article breaking down kind of the seasonal demand trends we're seeing in dairy. And I'm curious, what, what are we seeing in the world of cheese? Does that demand here domestically continue to be as strong as it has been? Yeah, so that's a really friendly story right now. And so just yesterday, we heard that actually um, the demand was starting to maybe outpace a little bit what the cheesemakers were able to produce. So the cheesemakers are doing a great job. Um, they are current. They are running full force. Uh, but short-term demand is, is really strong. So they're running at full capacity. And that cheese demand story continues to be friendly. We saw the block barrel, barrel price for cheese at some of the highest it had been in months. And so that was supporting the Clash 3 milk futures prices. Um, milk having a little bit of a kind of a quiet pullback here because now on Monday is when we're going to get the next milk production report. So we're going to be seeing as milk production starting to trend higher, the last two reports showed slight increases of production 
or are we going to see how maybe some of that heat affected milk production in the summer? So Monday's report is pretty important, but overall milk has really good support at the $20, $20 and $21 area on the futures charts. And we have such a friendly demand story, domestic demand and export demand. Oh, and export demand is strong as well, uh, Naomi? Yes, yes. Dairy demand exports have been fantastic. Um, the most recent number from July, so you got to remember everything that we get for the dairy complex is always a month behind, but the July number totaled 236,000 metric tons. That was up nearly 10,000 metric tons from a year ago, so that's really important. Um, and the butter exports, they're up 64% from a year ago. It's a new year high. So we are, you know, exporting, of course, all sorts of dairy supplies between butter and whey and cheese, but the butter market is the one that is the most in demand right now. All right. Well, that is good news. That's glad to, good to hear for the American dairy producers. And while we're talking livestock, Naomi, I want to take your attention over to the live cattle market, seeing a little bit of weakness here today, but it's been a strong week, really, in the cattle trade. Where do you see it going here next week? Well, I would say for cattle prices, you know, we're going to be, for the futures contracts, hanging out here near these higher levels. So we know that deferred contracts are well supported by lower numbers coming to market in the coming months. Um, so far, uh, demand short-term has been pretty decent. Cash news this week was supportive. I saw yesterday that cash prices were about a buck higher. So it is a, it's a friendlier story yet because demand is okay. And we've gone through the issue of we know that all these animals came to market soon because of the drought, because of the poor pasture conditions, but demand is actually really hanging in there quite well. Uh, we finally got those uh, beef export numbers from the USDA. And so for the week ending September 8th, beef exports came in at 15,000 tons for the rest of 2022 for delivery. And we even had some sales on the books for 2023. So we saw, you know, maybe a little bit lower numbers from the past four weeks. But if you look at where we are for cumulative sales for 2022, we're at 840,000 tons, which is actually the second highest on record for this time of year. So we are exporting our beef to South Korea, Japan, and of course, even China buying some of our beef as well. So the, the cattle story continues to be friendly overall. And uh, we're just continuing to hear some nice positive news coming from that complex. That is good to hear folks around the world getting in touch with American beef and recognizing just how tasty it is. Naomi Bloom, we always appreciate your insight from Total Farm Marketing up there in Wisconsin. Naomi, thanks for joining us here today on AOA. Yep, thanks for having me. And folks, stick around. We're thinking ahead to 2023 in terms of production. We're also think, thinking ahead in terms of acreage. And Josh Linville, Vice President of Fertilizer at StoneX, will join us when we return to take a look at what fertilizer prices could be doing as we get through this fall and plan ahead for the 23 growing season. We'll have more AOA coming up after this. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. This week, Dr. Chris Hostetler from the National Pork Board joined us, and we talked about how DDGs have become commonplace in the pork industry. You know, the renewable fuel standard came on board in 2007. Um, suddenly, corn was used for other things that it hadn't traditionally been used for, at least in, in uh, not in such great quantity. As a product of that, uh, distillers grains became available to us uh, as a feedstuff. Um, I would no longer classify uh, dis dried distillers grains or solubles, DDGS, as a, a non-traditional feedstuff for pig, uh, for pigs. We commonly use it as part of our swine diet today. That was Dr. Chris Hostetler from the National Pork Board reflecting on the partnership between pork and corn. We'll be back Wednesday, October 5th with the next edition of The Monthly Grind. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 
Well, the Bulls are on the defensive, it appears, as we prepare to close out the week of trading. It's not a total risk-off day by any means, at least not at this point, but the Bulls seem tired of finding as we approach the weekend. Traders are wary of the Federal Reserve's next move next week that will be a product of the lingering battle with inflation. The VIX trading just below 28 this morning as the fear level slowly ramps up again on Wall Street. The dollar index firmer near 110.1 as it draws closer to this month's 20-year highs once again. Crude oil prices trading either side of unchanged overnight into this morning, while the grain and oilseed sector mostly weaker this morning with generally modest losses, although we did dip a bit lower after the open of trade on the day Friday and have come off those lows a little bit, but still moderate losses pretty much across the board in grains and in the livestock trade as well, mostly uh, moderately lower there as well. Now, the financial markets are trading the possibility of this greater recessionary trouble lying ahead, and that has commodity traders worried, particularly in the energy and food markets. Fund managers generally view supply and demand fundamentals through the filter that is colored by their bias about the economy, and they channeled money into the commodities until mid-June when they saw a solid economy with strong inflation, and they pivoted in mid-June to trading recessionary fears that consumer demand for commodities would decline in the months and years ahead. Commodity prices responded accordingly. They didn't move in a straight line, but we've seen the underlying bias that could be seen. And it doesn't help that China's economy continues to struggle due to its zero COVID policy as well, or that China-U.S. tensions are at the highest we've seen in decades. Harvest is rapidly picking up the pace in the Midwest, which should provide additional perspective on yields as well. That's a look at the latest market action. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination, our honesty, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for making AOA a part of your day here on this Friday. Looking out to issues that could impact agriculture long term, it is hard to ignore the volatility and the market disruptions that have been happening for the past year in the world of fertilizer. Poor Josh Linville is the vice president of fertilizer for StoneX. He's the man tracked with keeping track of all of these things. Oh, Josh, I do not envy you one bit, sir. How are you doing today? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm uh, researching a lot of hair loss products and things like that. The amount of stress in this market is, uh, it, it, it's increasing the pace. I need some help. <laughs> I hear that, Josh. Let's talk about some of those stressors for you. Of course, the the ongoing story recently has been the rise of natural gas pricing in Europe and the shutdown of fertilizer producers. What's been happening here over the past two or three weeks? Do those prices remain elevated? They do. So what happened is we, for a while, we had seen a chunk of European production down as we had seen the Dutch TTF floating around the $30, $40 MMBTU equivalent. Well, all of a sudden we saw a super spike. Russia was completely shutting off supplies to Europe. Those values reached triple digits and the vast majority of Europe basically shut down. Now, since then, we've seen them drop from $100 back down to the 60, 65 range. But unfortunately, that's still not low enough to bring this production back on. So it, the world of fertilizer reacts when we see one or two plants go down. Imagine the reaction when we see an entire continent, when we see Europe as a whole shut down. And Josh, have we seen Europe as a whole shut down, or have these just been some of the larger players that have shut production so far? 
in Western Central Europe, it has been most all of them. The only plants that are still running are those that are either getting government subsidies to help offset the high price of natural gas, or they're importing the anhydrous from other parts around the world that are obviously able to produce it cheaper. But those that are relying on just producing their own anhydrous from natural gas stockpiles have had to shut down. It's just not feasible. It's not profitable, and they're not going to produce it at a loss. And Josh, though, that European nitrogen, the, the stuff that these facilities were producing, it was it mainly going to go to European producers or was this a lot of stuff that was exported into the global market? This is stuff that was staying in Europe. And when you look at it, they're not enormous numbers. When you look at the global urea production numbers, Europe only accounts for about 5 million or I'm sorry, 5% of global production of urea. But the problem is that's 5% of a very big number. That turns out to be 11 million tons per year that we are losing if this were to stay offline for 12 months. UAN is a much bigger deal. That is 20% of global production capacity resides in Europe. Those tons were staying in, uh, within the European uh, theater. But the problem is now, not only have we lost those supplies, well, those farmers are sitting there saying, well, I still need nitrogen. So now they become a buyer. Not only have we reduced the supply, we've increased the demand. Oh, boy, it has certainly been something else. Josh, looking out your contacts in the fertilizer industry, are they, are they expecting more relief here in European natural gas prices, or are they throwing in the towel? That's the problem. Nobody knows. These are markets that are no longer being driven by fundamentals. These are markets that are being driven by political moves. The whole natural gas situation was due to Russia shutting off gas flows. Now, there's a hope that Russia will come to its senses, Putin will stop this war in Ukraine, he will be removed from power, and the ultimate result will be that natural gas flows come back, European production turns on, and prices start to fall. But the problem is, hope is not a strategy. It sure isn't, Josh. And what have urea prices, NH3 prices, been doing here over the past two or three weeks? They've been climbing. Uh, here in the last couple of days, we've actually seen prices climbing double digits after a India urea purchase tender. Uh, they are a very great check. They buy a lot of tons. They ended up purchasing 850,000 tons on this last tender. And it's a great spot check of the market, and the result was b- bullish. But as of this morning, there has been a little bit of help. We're seeing the futures market down $30 a ton, at least for the January time frame, as there has been some rumors of a couple European plants talking about coming back online, uh, whether that be with the government, a little bit of government help or with them saying we've got to turn this plant back on before it turns cold. Uh, Nitrogen plants are hard enough to turn on in the summertime when it's warm. In the wintertime, that gets very difficult. So they may be saying better to start now than to wait until January. All right. We'll watch and see how that plays out. In the meantime, Josh, we are going to see a lot of American farmers need some uh, anhydrous ammonia here this fall. How are stockpiles looking domestically? I'm feeling pretty good about stockpiles here, right? We've not seen any big production hiccups. I feel as though the stockpiles, the storage tanks are all filled up and ready to go. That said, I would not get complacent on it. I would still, I'm a big advocate for, I understand in these trying times, we don't want to have the conversations. We want to shut down, not talk to our retailer, our supplier. I think with the markets as they are, I think it behooves the American farmer have more conversations. Give them an idea of what you're looking for. Are you doing more? Are you doing less? When are you coming in? at least giving them a fighting chance to have those supplies ready to go for sure. Absolutely. The fertilizer market always looking ahead to that next crop year. Josh, what do you think fertilizer traders are anticipating for corn acreage in 23? Well, I can tell you right now in our fertilizer demand models, we started this here a few months ago. We started with 90 million acres and we've since bumped that to 92 million acres. I have seen some other estimates, some other surveys coming out, and it's still, of course, far too early. I've seen some as high as 95. But we are continuing to stick to 92 until we see something that convinces us otherwise. Now, with that 90 to 92 million acres of corn, with the issues in Europe, with the issues here, and of course, with China's a continued ban on exporting nitrogen. Josh, what's your price expectation for spring applied fertilizer? It, it all depends, right? It depends on if China continues their export ban. It, 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 will Europe uh, continue to be shut down? Unfortunately, that's the problem with these markets. They are hard enough to call when it's based on fundamentals. When we start throwing political uh, intervention, it's impossible. Indeed it is. And of course, nitrogen is not the only place we've seen political interventions. We've also seen that on phosphates and on potash. Josh, globally, have there been any releases to some of the export restrictions on phosphates? On phosphate, there has. The Chinese government came out here a couple months ago, and while it wasn't nearly as much as a lot of people had hoped for, any little bit helps. The government came out and stated, hey, we will allow 3.6 million tons 
of all phosphate types, anything with P205 in it to be exported. Um, now, they currently have these uh, COVID uh, restrictions in place, which making it harder and harder to get these ships loaded and sent out to sea, but at least that's been a little bit of help. It's, it's, it's about the only good thing that we've seen come out of China here recently on a fertilizer point of view. All right. Well, that is good news. And are you seeing continued drops in the price of phosphates here with that additional capacity coming online? No, it's unfortunately phosphate prices. Uh, I say unfortunately for the uh, the American farmer, the price has been holding fairly steady. Uh, we have seen some global prices that have been sliding here in the last several weeks, but the U.S. price has been holding firm. All right, Josh, looking over at the world of potash, of course, that has been impacted by the Russia-Ukraine war and some of the fallout there. Have we seen any shifts in exports out of Belarus? We've not. As of right now, and we continue to research Lithuania to see if there's any uh, weakness in the armor there. But as of right now, uh, that export ban or that shipment ban through Lithuania of Belarusian product remains in place. And right now there's no signs or very, very few signs that they're going to back off of that ban. And Josh, just because it's been a while since we've discussed it, that ban on Belarusian phosphate or excuse me, potash exports isn't an EU ban. It's just Lithuania, right? Saying we don't want your trains coming through our country. Right. They've seen this situation played out. They've seen Russia, you know, make these moves before. And uh, Belarus obviously is helping Russia with that invasion. And Lithuania said enough is enough. Uh, this is not something EU did. And they took this on themselves to say, fine, if you are going to support Russia in this invasion, we are going to block you from the world market. Josh, demand for potash here heading into this next year. What are you folks anticipating at StoneX? I've got to believe uh, phosphate and potash demand is going to be down. Now, that's something that if it is a farmer listening to the Corn Belt, they're probably mocking me right now, saying there's no way I'm pouring the coal to the fire. And that makes a lot of sense if you're farming land that can produce 250, 300 bushels per acre. But the problem is the devil's in the details. And for me, I focus more on the fringe acres. And I don't mean fringe as a degradatory term, but what I mean is those acres that are only producing 150, 200. Their economics look a lot more different than those in the Corn Belt, and they are looking at this market. I've heard a lot of guys say, I am considering cutting back. Uh, we are currently using an overall demand destruction going into the fertilizer 23 year of 10 to 15%. A lot of time left that those numbers can change, but that's what we're using on the onset. Now, with that drop in demand, I know on the potash front, Josh, you've reported there have been a couple of projects that have been in the works, I believe one in Canada. Do you have any insight on whether or not those are, are actually going to open? I think that they will open. We just don't know what the time frame is of when they open. But it's it, it, potash is the only product out there on the fertilizer, as far as the majors go, that we feel fairly decent that we will see prices drop here in the next couple of years. And I know that doesn't help us for right now. That doesn't help us for the crop in front of us. But when you start looking at a couple of projects in Canada and in Russia, and you're starting to see more reserves being found in Africa that's being talked about being mined, uh, you start talking about demand destruction, you can see a situation where we have more than enough supply it's just going to, we've got light at the end of the tunnel. We're just not sure how long that tunnel is. All right, Josh. Well, we dodged a little bit of a bullet here with the delay in the strike from the railroads. I was wondering, did the lead up to that potential strike impact the fertilizer shipments around the country much at all? I don't think that it did, but I can tell you it spooked the market pretty substantially. Uh, a lot of questions had come in, you know, what does this mean? What will this do? And our point of view on it was if this was a short-term strike, meaning a week or two, it wasn't going to have a big effect. A lot of the phosphate potash was already in place in preparation for the fall season. And, you know, you've got November 1, six weeks away. So we had a little bit of time. We could withstand a little bit of a strike. But if you start going three, four, five weeks, well, now all of a sudden you're stopping the resupply from getting there. And these uh, terminals, they've got to order stuff mid-October so that it shows up as the demand shows up. So they stay on top of the ball. We dodged a big bullet. But as big of a deal as it was for the uh, the fertilizer side, it would have been much, much worse for the elevators for the harvest. It certainly would have been. We definitely dodged, dodged a bullet, folks. We've been talking to Josh Linville, the vice president of fertilizer over at StoneX. Follow him on Twitter to keep up with all of his fertilizer insights. He's at jlinvillefert. Josh, thanks for joining us today. All right. Thank you, sir. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk with John Johnson, the project coordinator for Farmers for Soil Health here when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. 
What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. We gather together in communities across the nation to remember and honor, to celebrate and support to light the night. Join us as we lift our lanterns high in order to move toward a world free of blood cancers. Join us as we light the night for a loved one. Join us. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Our mission is to cure leukemia, lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease, and myeloma. Our aim is to improve the quality of life of patients and their families. Join us. We are LLS, and when we walk, cancer runs. Join your community and help bring light to the darkness of cancer. Join us as we light the night. Find your local event at lightthenight.org. That's lightthenight.org. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers, and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council.
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. To AOA, ladies and gentlemen, we appreciate you making us a part of your day today. Thinking back to February 2022, Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack held a press conference and he announced that USDA was taking applications for a series of new grants underneath the Partnerships for Climate Smart Agriculture. Groups and uh, companies had the ability to come together, submit plans that would then be selected from USDA in order to help improve climate smart ag practices. Well, on Wednesday, USDA announced the first tranche of projects to receive funding. They said 70 different projects. Uh, Climate Smart Ag projects had been funded. All told, it's about $2.8 billion in grant money that'll be going out the door. And one of the recipients is Farmers for Soil Health. And joining us from that organization is John Johnson. He is the project coordinator. John, thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you, Mike. Let's talk about Farmers for Soil Health. John, this is a collaborative project with many different stakeholders. Who all do you have involved? Well, back in 2018, the National Pork Board, the National Corn Growers Association, and the United Soybean Board signed an MOU to collaborate on sustainability research and projects. And Farmers for Soil Health is what grew out of that effort. We were saying we're, we've all set sustainability goals for corn, pork, and soybeans. What are we going to do to execute against those goals and make progress? And so we came together and farm, Farmers for Soil Health, American Soybean Association also has joined us now. And under that, we've decided to focus on advancing the use of cover crops in corn and soybean production. And so we've set a goal of doubling the number of acres used to cover for, with cover crops from 15 million acres back in 2017 to achieve 30 million acres uh, by 2030. And so as part of that, we applied for one of these uh, Climate Smart Commodity Grants, and we were just thrilled and pleased to learn this week that we uh, were successful and have been approved. Uh, we're going to focus on 20 states, the major corn and soybean production states in the country, uh, and we're going to provide three years of declining cost share payments for farmers who start utilizing cover crops. We're going to provide technical assistance uh, to help them find the right varieties, the right timing, uh, all the information they need for their geography and their soil type, and we're going to uh, provide as much training as we can to our state commodity associations to so they can be of assistance to any farmers in our states. We're looking to work with eight to 10,000 farmers and to get cover crops uh, installed on 1.4 million acres over a several year period using this $95 million uh, in grant money that we are going to be awarded. John, that sounds very, very interesting, growing those acres of cover crop. Bring us up to speed. How many acres are we planting under cover right now? Do you know? Well, I don't have a good number. The census is done, ag census is done every five years. So right now they're getting ready to do the most recent one. The last one was done was in 2017. And at that time we had 15 million acres. Now we know that that number has grown since then. Our best guess is that today we're in the neighborhood of between 20 and 22 million acres. Uh, so we, we still got a ways to go to get to 30 million. Um, but uh, we were confident that we can achieve that easily by 2030. All right, John, let's talk about how this money is going to, to meet the road, so to speak. It was just announced on Wednesday. Is Farmers for Soil Health preparing to unroll some projects for the 23 crop season? Well, we've got a major step in front of us first. Uh, USDA has to uh, finalize a detailed grant agreement that will lay out how this grant money gets administered, and that's going to take a little bit of time. So we'll probably spend a couple months finalizing the details with USDA and we'll be ready to uh, start in earnest probably in 2023. Um, but we are hopeful that we'll get a good number of farmers interested and be willing to uh, plant cover crops in 2023. Uh, typically, most cover crops go in in late summer, early fall, uh, but there are some smaller situations where something might be done earlier in the year as well. But anyway, we, we're planning to have a, a major rollout for this effort in 2023. And Mike, I should add another important piece of this that we're going to fund with these dollars is building a digital platform 
that will allow farmers to market corn and soybeans produced with cover crops uh, where we hope that we can get a premium uh, per bushel for that corn and soybeans uh, from people who are looking to buy uh, commodities that are raised to a higher uh, sustainability standard, if you will. So that's uh, interesting. A premium back to the farm with uh, uh, a premium for the corn and beans grown on these acres. Very cool. So when or I guess what's the timeline for that digital tool? Well, we hope to have that available early next year. Uh, so for the folks to use to enroll in the program, uh, the other thing that this platform is going to allow us to do is to use satellite imagery uh, to verify the production uh, practices on the farm so that we can provide an eco score or certification to the corn and beans produced from these acres. And that's what will facilitate the marketing uh, to parties that are interested in something grown to a higher standard. Um, but there's a lot of work. We're working with DTN to develop that platform, and that's a, a labor-intensive effort, and we're hoping that that will be available early next year, early 2023. Early 2023, we'll be watching for that. You'll be having information coming out as you get that detailed grant proposal. But, John, I'm curious, as you look at things right now, will you be taking all comers up to that eight to 10,000 farmer mark, or will you be targeting specific acres as the program rolls out? Uh, we're, we're going to take all comers uh, within that 20-state area that we're focused on, um, and it'll be large farmers, small farmers, in between uh, anybody. We're going to um, cap the acres any individual farm can enroll at 500 acres to try to make the dollars go uh, farther and, and touch more farms. But uh, that's a pretty substantial uh, acreage cap, 500 acres. So I don't think that's going to crimp anyone's style. Uh, and it's going to be a declining cost share payment, $25 the first year, $15 the second year, and $10 the third year. All the research we show, know uh, says that cover crops take a couple years for you to hit your stride and learn how to manage them. And so we're looking to have uh, this cost share over a three-year period to help mitigate any risk with tackling a new practice and you know, customizing it, making it work just right for your farm, your soils, your geography. That's the secret, folks. If you're curious, you can visit FarmersForSoilHealth.com. We've been talking to John Johnson, and John, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. Have a good day. And folks, we'll see you on Monday. We're going to talk weather with John Baranek of DTN, and we'll talk ag policy with Jackie Fatka from Farm Progress. Have a great weekend, everybody. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting.